every single marketer and every single brand should be attempting to earn a disproportionate share of conversation. If you work for an organization where they say, bring us a chart that goes up and to the right, you have a challenge. Half the money I spend on advertising is wasted. The trouble is, I don't know which half. I am here to inspire you, to excite you, to motivate you, to transform you, to energize you. Hello and welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. This is executive producer Ben Wilson. Today's episode features an interview with Nate Skinner, global marketing leader for CX at Oracle. Prior to Oracle, Nate was the global head of marketing for Salesforce Pardot and has also served as the CMO of Campaign Monitor. On this episode, Nate talks about driving growth and lessons learned at Salesforce, how he thinks about demand gen and organizing a team, and much more. Enjoy. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Qualified.com. If you are a B2B marketer who has always dreamed of knowing when a qualified prospect is on your site and being able to talk to them instantly, now you can. Learn more at Qualified.com. So without further ado, please enjoy this interview between Nate Skinner and your host, Ian Faison. Welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, host of Demand Gen Visionaries and CEO of Caspian Studios. Across from me, six feet away from me, my good friend, Nate Skinner, what's going on? Hey, Ian, good to be here. Six feet indeed. Good to be here in Qualified.com studio. We got our table, we're socially distanced, and we have a lot of demand gen talk to get into. So do you remember, what was your first job in demand gen? That's a great question. My first job in demand gen was not a direct demand gen role. It was a product marketing role and I was focused on competitive intelligence. My job was essentially, what are all of our competitors doing? Synthesizing that for our product marketers and our demand gen marketers and the website teams and making sure they understood you can't put an ad in market or run a campaign that has these words because that's exactly the same words our competitors are using. So that was my first experience with demand gen was, whoa, all this stuff that we do in product marketing has a direct impact on how engaging the content we put in the market is. And so I partnered up with the demand gen team at that time. This is, you know, 11 years ago or something to really help make sure that our message was distinct, our positioning was differentiated, and ultimately we weren't sounding like everybody else. So flash forward to today, what does it mean to be SVP of marketing at Oracle? Well, specific to demand gen, it has a completely different profile. We are in massive organization company with incredible technology. Just yesterday, Larry Ellison hosted our first Oracle Live of 2020, and we announced our autonomous database technology evolution and some of the innovations we've made on that front. We have hundreds of thousands of customers. And so demand gen today in my role is really making sure that that population of customers knows what we have to offer them besides what they may already own. It's almost an account-centric kind of demand problem that we're addressing. Now, at the same time, you look at any of the stats and any of the total addressable market metrics that analysts like Gartner or Forrester put out and the size of the addressable market for customer experience is massive. It's like over north of 50 billion, even incorporating the growth slowing of COVID, it's a seven or 8% CAGR you know, growth market. And so that is huge and not all of those people have these solutions to solve the problems they face. So we have kind of a two-sided coin, install kind of embracing our customers and helping them understand how we can help them beyond how we've helped them so far. And then making sure people know that Oracle has solutions like this and oracle.com slash CX is where you can start. And like, you know, making sure that people understand that we're a leader in the space and getting the word out about it. 
Well, and CX, obviously, one of the most important topics right now because of the fact that I think everybody is realizing at the same time, like, you know, CX is the new brand, right? We can track everything now. We can figure out what your experience means. So things like, you know, sales, service, marketing, commerce, all these things are blending into one thing, which is, you know, why it lives under CX. So what are the types of folks that you're working with at Oracle? Who are your customers on the CX side? There are all those pillars that you refer to, those categories of sellers, service professionals, customer support, et cetera. Imagine a call center, a contact center, someone who owns that. The folks who are worried about the commerce site, whether that's B2B or B2C. The folks who are dealing with sales operations and you know configure price and quote technology along with sales force automation. Those are all of our customers. The interesting thing is what you mentioned, Ian, is the, the conundrum that the environment finds itself in. And that is this. All of those people have to work together today, more maybe than ever before, because the customer experience starts with whoever gets to the customer first. You can't just say, well, we've got the marketing campaign engaging, so that works. Or, oh, well, our customer support people are all trained really well and our CSAT scores are real high. If you're not taking into account the way you're engaging people on the front end at the marketing side, you can't ignore sales who are interacting probably the the tip of the spear on your experience for your brand while your service and marketing are doing well. You have to take into account all of it because as you and I know, the journey your customer follows to get to your brand is non-linear, right? They could come in through a case, they could come in through an ad, they could come in from a, you know, show me your product or show me a demo. Every one of those touch points is an opportunity to influence that relationship and engage that customer. And now more than ever, we have to bring those things together and really engage that customer on their terms in the way that they wanna be engaged. That's the customer we're dealing with today. Yeah, and I think if you look at how many opportunities there are for things to fall through the cracks there, if you have the brand new BDR just emailing the the CIO every other day about some product when they're already a you know multi-million dollar customer of three other products and they just don't know, like you have to have a holistic a- approach of that account. Yeah, you hit it on the head. I mean, everyone has to be connected to the problem we're trying to solve, which is deepening the relationship with every customer. And the fact is that every interaction that we have with them is an opportunity to do so. And if you've got first in their career business development reps that aren't looking at the details about the customer's existing relationship, whether that's in the front end or the back end. You know, maybe they're, you're billing them already through an invoice system, or maybe you're actually working with them on the human side, on the HCM side. The BDRs need to have visibility into that because that informs the conversation they have and the experience the customer has with your brand. And now more than ever, we have to work together. So let's take a look into how this works at Oracle. We're gonna go into the trust tree. With the knowledge you've been given, you are now on the inside of what I like to call the circle of trust. What, I thought we were in the trust tree in the nest, are we not? So this is where you're gonna feel honored and trusted, and you can share your deepest, darkest demand-gen secrets. So taking a step back, you just came into this role a handful of months ago. You've worked at now some of the premier technology organizations with Amazon Web Services, Salesforce, and now Oracle. As you came into the role, how did you think about demand gen for a company that has, you know, 300,000 plus customers and like a, a monstrous sprawl? I think the first thing anyone in my position would do, at least I, I would 
assume that they would do is understand the environment we're in, right? Every business has their challenges, every business has their strengths, every business has their weaknesses. And my job when it comes to demand gen is to understand what is our strategy and how are we going to attack it and set ourselves up for success to attack the problem if there is one. You said it, like over 300,000 customers, that's a rich base of customers to engage with. The question then becomes, as you tease the data aside, how many of them are engaged with our portfolio? How many of them are own the one, two, three, five products that we would like to help them understand we could help them with? And what you figure out is that, I mentioned it earlier, in this particular environment, we have two customers we're trying to attract. One is an existing Oracle customer who is using you know, the autonomous database or OCI, our cloud infrastructure product, and they're extensively invested and they're getting value from that relationship. And we want to have them expand their relationship with Oracle to include the customer experience portfolio. Or they already own Eloqua or Responsus or Right Now or something, and we want to kind of add on some capabilities with them. That's a different problem. That's not a broad-based marketing campaign. There's a finite set of customers we need to get the message in front of. The other side of that is what, and this is all what you discover when you dig in, right? And when, as a new employee, this is what I had to figure out before I could say, I've got a plan. Uh, the other side of that is there's a lot of people out there that don't yet know about us and we need to let them know about us. And that's more of the top of funnel stuff, thought leadership and awareness we need to do. We have to do both of those things. We can't do one or the other. We have to do them both. Yeah, I would imagine that when you have someone who says, you know, from a brand perspective, everybody knows, I mean, I don't know what number percentage wise, I mean, I would assume everybody knows about Oracle, thanks to our great Golden State Warriors and, and the Oracle uh, arena. But everybody knows about Oracle. But as you mentioned, it's like, maybe this CMO doesn't know that, you know, you're already a customer four times over. And it's like, oh, hey, maybe we could look at this. So they know who Oracle is, but they don't know the entire suite of products. Right. You know, it's one of the things I'm a big fan of kind of listening, learning, and then acting as opposed to, you know, a lot of people in my experience will walk into a role like this and their gig, their perception of themselves is I know the answers. Yeah. Change the website. Yeah. It's, it's always the answer. <laughs> exactly. Change the website. My approach is different than that. I, I feel like I can't be good at my job unless I understand what's working, what's not working. Let's do more of what works and less of what doesn't, right? Like let's clearly. And then you look for those opportunities to kind of change the game. And one of the things that's very apparent in this Oracle is we have extraordinary brand equity, as you mentioned, from the brand itself and then from ERP and from HCM and some other much bigger businesses within Oracle. The question is, how do we attach to that so that those customers know we have more to offer them and it happens to be world-class? Like that's a different problem and we have to figure out how to solve for that. At the same time, you know, if I go to a, a CMO dinner and ask all those CMOs, we're a sponsor of an organization right here in San Francisco called Marketers That Matter. This is a great example. There are a bunch of world-class CMOs in there. Our company's CMO, Ariel Kelman, is now a member of this community. If you asked all of them over a cocktail, you know, who's the vendor you'd bet on right now for marketing technology as a trusted advisor, I don't know that they'd all say Oracle. I would be remiss to say that they would. They might say Eloqua, they might say responses, but I don't know that they'd say Oracle. And we have to change that. We have to get in front of them with a world-class solution and solve problems that they need solved. And sometimes the way to do that is you're already using the database or you're already using something else. And we just need to educate the market. That's really fascinating. What a distinction, right? When it's like the products are more powerful than the overall brand. And yet, you know, you're trying to leverage your salespeople. It reminds me of uh, 
this is an anecdote, but or an aside, but it uh, reminds me of in, did you ever watch Arrested Development? Yeah. He's like, oh, this Funke guy, getting a lot of water cooler gossip. And then, uh, then he's like, what's your name? It's like Tobias, <laughs> right? It's like you do all this work to build up one part of your name, but everybody knows you for the other. That's right. And I can imagine a lot of companies out there with a portfolio of products. You know, this, this wouldn't apply to like a one product company. But for a company who has a wide variety of technology to offer, they probably face maybe a similar challenge. Maybe a product brand has extraordinary equity, but the company brand doesn't. In our case, it's mostly the opposite. How do you go about solving for that? You have to be creative. Ultimately, one of my favorite sayings right now is like, let's work with our rich cousins right? When I mean rich, I mean like existing customer base of customers that have been working with Oracle for decades. They are clearly well positioned to understand what motivates those customers to do things. What's the next best offer, their propensity to buy something else. Well, let's work with them. Let's not invent new things necessarily in order to get in front of those customers. Now, there's another thing I'll add here, Ian, is the concept of the committee. And for demand gen professionals, this I'm sure all of them are familiar. If you go back a few years, we all were learning about or knew about the ideal customer profile. Sure. Right. Well, her name is Sally and she's 24 to 36 and she shops on Stitch Fix or whatever. But now with technology as pervasive as it is, one transition I've seen is that it's no longer necessarily a persona that you need to market to and engage with. It's a committee of personas. So one of the things that I did when I first got in here, as you peel apart the, the data and start to understand what we're trying to do, what's working, not working, I mentioned earlier, was a realization that Oracle has extremely solid and deep relationships with IT. So if you're a CIO out there in the world, the idea that I could say Oracle and you wouldn't know exactly who I'm talking about is almost non-existent. How do we take advantage of that when our technology is not the stuff necessarily that a CIO is shopping for? We engage them by committee. So we started talking about campaigns we want to run that are, what is Oracle CX for a CIO? We've never done that before, but that's exactly the kind of opportunity that, you know, we're already in front of them with this technology that's so well known. Let's just make sure they also know about this other thing so that when the buyer, the head of marketing or the head of sales or the CFO comes and says, hey, let's look at our portfolio and see where we can save some money that the CIO can say, well, we can save a lot of money by looking at Oracle. Those are the kinds of opportunities we need to embrace. They're different than normal. You know, we used to, we, uh, two years ago, we might've just gone marketer, 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 seller, 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 and not ever had them come together. We need to think about the committee of buyers and the committee of influencers that are all ideal customers. As you were doing your demand gen audit, for lack of a better term, was there anything that happened or that you saw that was surprising to you as you came into the role? The most surprising thing was how much what we were doing was leading in the space. Like we had, I think the metaphor would be you have the fastest car in a race, but literally no one is sponsoring you. So you can't get it out in front of the, the racetrack, right? It's like we had all this extraordinarily powerful technology in many cases, like 18 categories where we're a leader in the CX portfolio and just not a lot of marketing to let people know that. So in the COVID environment, this became very clear. We had in the public sector, we had customers like the city of Jacksonville. They had this spike in citizens calling up, you know, services from the city. That, hey, I need help with where I would send, you know, my cousin or my niece, or where can I find out more information about the latest vaccine or the latest antibodies tests or whatever. You can imagine that any number of things that local city government municipalities are dealing with in this environment. Well, 
What they found was that Oracle could help them with our virtual contact center technology. We realized that that had happened. They had discovered that on their own. It wasn't from a campaign we ran. It was just they knew that Oracle had this product. The selling team did a great job of making sure they understood how we could help them, and we did so. Well, a smart marketer on our team was like, hey, you know, we should kind of make sure that other municipalities know that we can help. And that was where the rubber hit the road. It's like, don't think about marketing the thing. Don't think about marketing the brand or marketing the company or marketing a product. Think about the problem we're solving for the customer and work backwards from there. And when we did that, we relaunched our public sector website for CX because we wanted to make sure if you were a municipality like the city of Jacksonville, you could find the solution to problems you were facing. And it was just a simple adjustment to the copy, the words, the imagery to make sure that we want to help every municipality out there that wants to be able to handle increased case volume from their constituents. Let's go to the playbook. This is what's great about sports. This is what the greatest thing about sports is. You play to win the game. Hello? You play to win the game. The playbook is where you open up your playbook, both at Oracle and in your previous lives, and talk about the tactics that helped you win. Let's start with uncuttable budget items. I want to know the things that when you walked in on the first day at Oracle that you sat down with the, your CMO and were like, clear some budget. We're doing X, Y, and Z, because if we're not doing these, we're crazy. Well, I mean, the first one, I think, for, especially for any technology company, would recognize it's the website. That is the front door to the house. That's the world's perception of us. If we did no campaigns, if we ran no ads, it's the website. And you cannot cut the website. In fact, if anything, you have to invest in it. You have to invest in technologies like qualified.com that allow you to chat with customers. Like, you have to make the website as simple and approachable and concise as possible because people have such limited attention spans. But the additional side of that right now is everyone is sitting at their home on their computers searching the internet. So if you're not doing your best to make sure your website attracts them when they find you, you are losing right now. So that's number one, don't mess with the web. If anything, invest in, double down on the website. The second is in quality of people. This is a tough environment generally, not to mention where we are right now with COVID. The number of people who are out there that have the skills and experiences to do all the things you need to do to drive the next generation of growth out the other end of this environment, there's not that many. I mean, like really, really good, strong execution engine of human beings is something we don't want to cut. We have to look at it and think, where do we get the most from this? How can we drive the next generation of growth? And the third part of this answer, which is a long-winded one, unfortunately, that both of those things work in combination to drive value to the selling team. We talk about our customer proposition, right? We think about the customer and work backwards when it comes to good marketing. I think that's the way I approach it is what is the problem we're solving for customers? Let's talk about it that way so that we use their language to reach them with our solution. And when we do that well, it drives new demand for the sellers. And if we're doing that, then the leads they're getting are of high quality and not a bunch of wasted time. There's nothing salespeople like to complain about more than either one of two things, a lot of really bad leads or not enough good leads. They work hand in hand. If you're talking about the customer's experience and putting the solution in front of them, then you're by definition likely driving very qualified leads to your sellers. And anything that's doing that, you can't cut. What's interesting to me that, so you have this opportunity where, and I'd imagine when you like 
sat down uh, as you were contemplating the role, um, we were like, this is our pipeline number? Like, are you serious? <laughs> this is this is big. Like, put on the uh, big kid pants. The level of complexity that is going into it right now that I have to kind of like deconstruct to figure out where we are to where we want to go. And then, you know, as you talked about these buying committees, these things, to get into the granular level of like, what is my SEO spend? What is my, what is our Facebook advertising spend? These different channels that you're, you're looking at these massive amounts of money that you're spending. And then to go back to like, if we just, like you said, if we just asked the CIO or the CMO talk about any of these things, they wouldn't be searching for it anyways. Right. And they're definitely not clicking ads on it, right? It has to go, not, not that those aren't important pieces of this. If you're not even, if you're putting the cart before the horse. So I'm curious, like how did you approach that type of problem? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, the beginning of the approach has to be how do people think about what it is we can do for them. It literally, to me, it starts there. The city of Jacksonville, I'll say it again, the city of New York had the same exact environment. We have a very robust public sector business. And it's because we can virtualize a contact center. So all of these folks that are answering the phones or dealing with chats, they can be working from home and just as productive and connected to the systems. That's an Oracle solution. How do you tell people that without talking about you? That's the key. It's like, if we go out there and say, Oracle does this and Oracle does that, no one's thinking in those terms. Like, I don't care what you do. I'm, I care about me, right? Yeah. That's the first step is, how do people think about the problem they're facing? And then do we or do we not have a solution to that problem? And as you go through that exercise, you realize every single one of these, you know, there's some that you don't do. I mean, that's the other part that we didn't talk about, getting into the granularity of like where you spend and where you don't. Even Oracle, as big as we are, as robust of a company and with the balance sheet we have, we don't have endless resources when it comes to dollars. You know, and marketing is program dollars and people, like at the end of the day. Well, how do you not peanut butter it all around, do a whole bunch of stuff that ultimately doesn't move the needle? You have to pick like some very specific bets and then measure those investments and then double down when they're working and take away when they're not. And that's a part of the exercise. But it starts with how are customers thinking about the problems that we can solve and which ones will make the most material impact to their experience with us because those typically are where revenue comes from. And so how do you tie that into your relationship with sales? How are you partnering with sales to do the activities that you know are going to get you those wins with them? I mean, one big way is understanding what their customers are telling them. There's no, there's no shortcut to talking to customers. No shortcut. And if I see anything in marketing professionals that drives me more crazy, it's those that don't talk to customers all the time. The good news is your sellers are, that every single one of them is having, that's their job. So very specifically, get on the phone with the sellers and ask them, what are the last five things customers have said to you? One of the reasons that that city of Jacksonville story became bubbled up to me was because the sellers were telling our product marketing and marketing team, hey, the city of Jacksonville has changed the game and they did it almost overnight. It was unheard of for a municipality to pivot that quickly. Well, now it's like, well, that problem must have been important to solve. Yes, extremely important. They couldn't do it without a solution. We had the solution. Okay, let's amplify that. That's directly based on a sales cycle, right? A feedback loop. So I, the answer to your question is talk to them. Talk to them all the time. Get on calls with them. Do win-loss analysis. I mean, we do that all the time. I, I would recommend to anyone listening, do at least once a quarter have a third party do it. Don't do it yourself because you won't get the right answers. Why you win and why you lose and get that back from 
prospects and customers and ask sailors the same thing. Why do you think we win? Why do you think we lose? And you and then marry those results up to each other. You'll be fascinated to see how different they are. Yeah, go into that a little bit. So what, what do you mean by have a third party do it? I mean, if marketers go down the path of you know, running a win-loss analysis project, you know, where you literally take a hundred customers or a thousand customers, and these are the ones that won, and we're going to ask them a series of questions, and these are the ones that lost, we're going to ask them a series of questions. Marketers in the company doing that have a bias. They have a bias towards the outcome. You need kind of a therapist. What's the best thing about a therapist is they have no skin in the game, right? I re highly recommend, by the way. Uh, <laughs> like, it's good for everybody. Uh, but the fact that they have no skin in the game means that they're objective and their objectivity is what you're after. With a win-loss analysis, you want the truth. If you didn't win because your sellers were aggressive or abrasive, you want to know that. If you didn't win because you were overpriced, you want to know that. If you win all the time because you're solving a very specific problem and no one else can, you want to know that. And you don't want to kind of take the results of that and, and make them look the way you want them to look for whoever your internal audience is. Remove the politics from it by having a third party do it and the results will speak for themselves. And then take that and learn from it and adjust. I know it's it's still new here and you got a lot of campaigns that are in the works, but previous in your career, what are some of uh, you know the best campaigns or your favorite demand gen campaigns that you've run? Yeah, I think the answer that I'll go with will be, I can think of a handful that were really fun. I can think of a handful that drove extraordinary results, but I really don't feel comfortable talking about any of those because of where they were and what we did and how long ago they were. Uh, what I will say is, is this, the best campaigns tied directly the message in the market to the seller's motion at the time of engagement to what you saw in ads and display and paid. So like literally no disconnect. Those are the best campaigns. They work the best, they perform the best, and they are clearly connected. Here's an example of what I mean. We're about to launch a campaign right now around our responsive selling solution. Well, every single seller at Oracle has gotten the playbook for responsive selling. They've gone through the pitch. They've had to certify on the pitch. They know how to talk about it. Now we're running ads in the market that talk about responsive selling. You'll start to see them. Then you land, you know, imagine you're a customer, ian.com, and you see this ad or you see this landing page for, you're searching for, you know, next generation selling or inside sales efficiency or whatever, and you come across the Oracle solution for responsive selling. You're going to then talk to a sales rep about responsive selling. Well, what's worse? Talking to the sales rep and they're like, I don't know what you're talking about, but let me tell you the, the buttons to click or the other side of the coin, the sellers are talking about a sales play they're running, but there's no ads in the market and the website doesn't reflect those messages. The customer is confused. They think they're talking to different companies. The best campaigns are the ones where that all matches up to each other. So the customer calls the BDR, your previous example, you know, hey, I just saw this, you know, I did an organic search for responsive selling and you guys were the first result. Tell me about how you can help me power the future of inside selling. And the rep is like, I know exactly how to do that because I just learned about it in our sales playbook and they execute the play. And the customer now feels like, whoa, these guys really have their stuff together. As opposed to the opposite of that, messages that don't match the motion at the sales level, it's a disaster. Those are the best campaigns. What about uh, worst campaigns, biggest learning experiences? One very specific would be that you spend a ton of money to get a bunch of impressions that don't convert. And the problem, the reason I point that one out is I'm not, again, not going to talk about a specific one. I've had my share of those. But the reason those are terrible is because from marketers' point of view, they're great. You know, we spent X dollars and got thousands of impressions. 
But from the sales team's perspective, they're all crap. Are you measuring marketing performance for marketing's sake, or are you measuring marketing performance for the company's sake? And the answer should be the latter, not the former. So the worst campaigns I've seen are some where we spend an inordinate amount of money and stood around waving a scorecard that said, look, we got this many impressions, and actually none of that turned into customers. What about the campaigns that you can't measure or have a difficulty measuring? Um, you mean, are there worst ones and best ones of those? No, no, no. I just mean, like, how do you, how do you look at creating measures and, and stats that you can bring to sales and say, like, hey, I know we, we can't exactly say what the add-on 101 did, but we were running campaign for X and Y and Z, and, you know, 500,000 people a week saw this banner on 101. My answer might be controversial, but I'll say it anyhow, because you have a demand gen audience out there. Why would you bother explaining that to a sales leader? Because it's marketing's job to do that, right? We know what happens. Marketers know that putting a well-placed out-of-home buy with a very compelling message will draw attention. It's just the top of the funnel. It's the thought leadership and awareness play, right? Why do everybody go to CES and crowd the floors with their companies and their booths? It's awareness. If you're not there, then someone else is filling in the void, right? We know that in our gut. We don't need sellers to tell us that that's a good idea or not. We know that 18 months from now, they'll be working a lead that is a direct result of someone who first saw that banner ad. We just know that in our soul. The metrics you want to share with sales are the ones that they care about on a daily basis and a weekly basis and a monthly basis and a quarterly basis, which is lead flow. So until it becomes an opportunity stage one, until it becomes a lead that gets flipped from the BDR to the seller, it doesn't matter to sales. I would just say, focus on the things that they care about. This is the exact conversation we were having earlier around turning the conversation to the customer. Selling teams do not care that you spend $100,000 on an out-of-home buy. They don't care. They do care that you spend $100,000 on a lead gen campaign that generated 10x pipe coverage. That they care about. So share those and leave the rest out. I love it. And I'll give you a pass on the campaigns, but I need more dirt. I need more, more, more dirt from you on, uh, on plays and everything. Um, so I'm curious, you know, you talked about some of the ways that, you know, you've developed pipeline, the types of campaigns that you like, but within that, the team, how do you organize your team around getting the right people to be running those campaigns? Yeah, especially demand gen. I mean, well, my global marketing team has product marketing, field marketing, demand gen, digital display and web, like all of the above. The demand gen one is like for us is arguably the most important, although that's not fair because every part of it is it works together like an engine. You know, you, you can't have this work without that product marketing and the messaging and the demos and the stories is just as important as the execution of a campaign that drives demand. So yeah, it's like it's like a soccer team, right? Yes. Everybody's equally important, except if you didn't have a goalie, you'd lose every game. That's right. And to me, the demand gen team is definitely the goalie because they're the ones that put this stuff into the universe, right? To be found, consumed, engaged with. And if they don't do that well and measure it well and report on it, not just read out, people that really understand how to analyze the results. Here's a great example. Here's 10 blog posts we did in order of page views, one to 10. Well, I look at something like that and I say, okay, what does, it, what does that tell me that the bottom five added together equal the top one? Does it tell us that the bottom five are crap or that the top one's exceptional? 
I don't have any information there. It's just a readout. That's a great point. Yeah. So the demand gen pros that are extraordinary, and the woman that leads demand gen on my team is extraordinary. Shout out to Heike, Heike Newman. She's great, by the way. Yeah, she's awesome. Shout out, Heike. Heike is able to do all of those things. She's able to think about a campaign hierarchy to make sure that the top level message and the actual execution of campaigns in market are all related. So you don't have this mismatch of who are these people and what are they doing? Like it all relates to Oracle. She knows how to measure it. She knows how to make sure it's funded. She knows how to take care of the operation side of the budget. She knows how to make sure that every impression is counted, even the bad ones. But she's also very balanced in her approach to measuring only what matters and it's not about us, it's about performance. And so she takes out the stuff that's like, oh, we generated a bunch of clicks on that ad. She knows as well as anyone, better than anyone, that that doesn't matter if it didn't convert, if it didn't become a deal for our sellers. And that's what makes demand gen pro like Hike is so important. I don't know if that answered your question. Yeah. Well, and then how would you, as you're interviewing folks like that, as you're talking to demand gen leaders as a head of marketing, what are the types of things that you're looking for, for that exact quality? How do you pattern match to figure out who those folks are? I ask a series of questions. Um, some of them kind of soft and squishy and some of them much more specific. So one is like, give me your top five metrics and how you calculate them. The question is designed not to tell you what the metric should be. It's to get you to elicit what you measure, what matters to you. And the demand gen badass will have their handful, their own playbook that they know works well for them. And they'll tell you what they are and they'll tell you how they calculate them. And if they're not the right ones for what you need, it's clear. There's squishier ones too. Like, do you like to party in PowerPoint or Excel? If you could spend your time in one of these two things, which one would it be? You know, Adobe XD or Excel? Really good demand gen people would much rather get down with Excel. And it's because of what the data can tell them about whether something's working or not. They can cut it and they can slice it and they can pivot on it. And they can understand that certain segments are working and certain aren't and why. And you can sniff that out pretty quickly. If you're talking to a demand gen leader that's like, oh, the metrics are this and that, and they read a good book, but then they're like, I really enjoy storytelling and putting together slides, probably need someone that's got a little more roll up their sleeves in that demand gen role. Not to say demand gen people like Heike can't tell a story, because she can, but she knows that at the end of the day, this stuff has to get into the market and we have to measure how effective it was. And if we can't do that, we don't get budgets, we don't get funding, we don't get people, you know, all that other stuff falls apart. Yeah. And in our, in our goalie analogy here, it's like, you know, you got to be able to block shots first. And then it's like how far you can kick is not a non-negotiable. Yep, exactly. In this strange soccer analogy, two couple soccer buffs like us. So let's get into our next segment, the dust up. Uh-oh. Here comes trouble. You may have heard that there was a dust up involving yours truly. And now we've got a wild scrum with fights breaking out all over the place. And it is getting So this is where we talk about healthy tension, whether that's with your board, your sales teams, your competitors, your peers, or anyone. Have you had a memorable dust up in your career? Yes. <laughs> Can we just stop? No. Uh, the dust ups I'm most familiar with are very unique from my perspective. I'm going to acknowledge that right now because I spent 10 years in sales before I spent the last 11 years in marketing. So I have dust ups from both. My first is dust up as a seller. I used to drive me crazy when I'd go into the marketing team and say, hey, why can't we do this? And why can't we do that event? And why can't I get leads? And they'd always say, well, we don't have budget. We don't have budget. It drove me crazy. I'm like, what do you mean? Just get the leads, load them up. Like, what's the problem? 
and plenty of dust-ups. I was also younger then, so you know, I call that Nate 1.0. It was a little uh, more rough around the edges. My dust-ups were specifically, I did not know what in the world marketing did with all the money that they always said they didn't have. It's kind of like in, in, in the city of San Francisco, everybody gets a, pay, a hike increase on like the MARTA, or I'm sorry, uh, BART. You know, you're like, okay, that means we're gonna get more buses and more Caltrains and stuff, nope. So what am I paying for exactly? Like, that's how it always felt. It used to drive me crazy because I was just trying to get my number, right? Every seller out there that if they choose to listen to this podcast would listen to this and hear me say, all sellers care about is two things. The greatest ones care about their customer success and everybody else, which is most of them, care about hitting the number. And anything that you're doing in a marketing role that detracts from them hitting their number is just a distraction and it's noisy. And most of my dust-ups as a seller were marketers that were just distracting and noisy. I just couldn't understand why you couldn't help me meet my number. What I didn't know at the time was that they were. They just didn't explain it to me. They didn't come down the hall enough. They didn't come and sit in on calls with me. They didn't come to a customer meeting. No offense to those marketers who I'm still friends with, many of them, they're good at their jobs, but they should have taken the opportunity, which is my next dust-up, to engage with me around how they can tie what they're doing to what I'm doing, because we're on the same team. You know, I am, we have a goalie and we have a kicker. The other dust-ups on the, on the marketing side are exactly the same, but in reverse. We're driving results to the website. We're driving demand. We're driving leads that are of high quality. And the sellers are ignoring the lead score. The sellers are letting leads sit for two days, four days, six days. They're complaining about quality, even though every lead we've got is is literally the buyer who would buy this product and they're in the market. They came right out of a G2 campaign. Those are where the dust-ups live. And I think it's telling that they happen from both directions because I imagine most of the listeners out there have the exact same experiences. Very few sellers have ever been marketers and very few marketers have ever been sellers. And, you know, I use this a lot. I may have used it with you before, Ian. It's like that Love Languages book. I think you did, actually. Yeah. This last interview from probably two years ago. Yeah, I, I'm just, I got to go there because it is so true. The five love languages, if you're in selling and you're talking about your love language and marketers are talking about theirs and you're not talking about the same thing, you will never align around the fact that we're operating together as a revenue engine for the company. And if you start to understand as a marketer, oh, the sellers talk in a different language. They care about things like opportunities, forecasts, pipe, lead, pipe gen, lead gen, related to opportunities, then you're talking their language. And for sellers, when you're talking to marketing, understand that we're focused on the entire funnel, not just on your number today. And if you want to have a conversation that's productive, focus on some of that too. Going back to your question around the out-of-home buy, ask about that if you're a seller. You might be surprised at how much reception you get from a marketer who's never had a seller asking that question. Yeah, it's pretty clear that you know a lot of the ways that you think about marketing are trying to respond to Nate 1.0's questions. It's like, I just want to be able to answer my previous self. If they invent the time machine, you'll be like, actually, this is what the marketing team was doing. That's right. You said it. I would love to be able to go back to Nate 1.0 as a marketer now, which I think I'm on like 3.5 or so at this stage, and be able to have that same conversation. But with what I know now as a marketer for the past 11 years, I would have a totally different conversation than one I, that the marketers at the time were having with me. Well, I mean, I think that that's Ian 1.0 as a seller was always 
changing the slides, right? It's like, there's never a set of marketing slides that I didn't want to change 55 times. But I think that the reason why is because you're like, well, I'm customizing, right? Because this person lives in this location and this is what they've told me about. And this is all the research that I've done, right? But I think that that's one of the things that I think marketing teams like miss in terms of like oversharing information is like, this is all the research and the data that we have about all these people, especially in enterprise, especially when you're talking about things like an account that you've already sold into or that you're trying to upsell or all these things. It's like, we have real like anecdotal evidence that this person knows you're like, oh, but this is the industry that they're in. Here's five industry examples. Like, no, but I'm telling you that they know the CIOs of these four companies. That's why I'm putting them in the slides, yeah. right? Because they can go ask their peers if they buy from us, right? Absolutely. And those are the sort of things that like, you have to have a two-way dialogue. About. Well, and, and as a marketer, you can't get upset about that. Our job is to give the sellers a framework from which to operate that is as concise and, and approachable as it could be when it comes to slide decks, for instance. And the fact that a seller would take it and customize it for a customer, that's what they should do. Yeah, of course. What we should do is create a framework for them to do exactly that. Give them the 80% and let them tweak the 20. If they're worth their salt, they absolutely are tweaking it, and they should. How about some mistakes that you see demand gen pros make or demand gen leaders make with their teams? I think stopping short of messaging, you know, a lot of demand gen leaders think about the operation stuff, the things we talked about earlier, the return on the investment, the budget, the campaigns we're going to run, maybe a content calendar and how that all lines up to drive the campaign into market, especially inbound. How are we doing all of that together and what's that look like? And it becomes a very operational role. And remembering that actually you've got a bunch of messages that need to be concise. You got to have, you know, a tight story you're telling in the market and making sure that that's a thread that's woven in between all of those various pieces is a mistake that some demand gen leaders make because they're the last best opportunity to make sure we don't look like we're confused in our own messaging. You know, it's almost like the last mile. The first mile is all the product marketing and the messaging and putting together the headlines and the press releases and the out-of-home ads and all that. And the last mile is execution. And the execution team is the best situated in the marketing organization to look at all the previous stuff and make sure that it's bound together and be able to raise the flag that says, hey guys, before we hit go on this campaign, are you sure that we wanna say this in this way? Because back here when we did this, whatever it was, we didn't say that and we're introducing a new concept here. They're in the best place to do that. No other individual team owns that much of the kind of collective complete cake birthday cake I was thinking of for some reason. That's a great insight. I think I want to know how many content calendars have ruined great marketers because they're great campaigns. Because I feel like, especially with how many like MarTech tools that we got with like scheduling, it's like, we're like, wait, we can schedule everything. And then all of a sudden your whole marketing team is just like, well, I have that scheduled. I don't care. I don't care. Yeah, I yeah. literally could care less how much we have scheduled or how many things that we put into. But you're like, you schedule all of the team to get everything in place because that's how you work, right? Well, this is how we get work done. We have 15 people that are working on this campaign that all need to get their pieces done and need to get it all scheduled in this system. So 
And then at the end of the day, you're like, we have one tagline that we want them all to know yep. is that we're going to cut their bill in half. Could we promote that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's actually exactly that. You know, it's a hundred different moving parts that operate on their own by, de by design to get to a place where the campaign can go. The best team to make sure that that's all connected and seamless and clear is the demand gen team. And if they don't understand how that stuff got formulated in the first place, or what I call the why, why are we saying it this way? Why is this the most important thing we're doing right now instead of later? Then they can't make those adjustments to the calendar. They can't make adjustments or flag things that don't appear to be accurate in the messaging. They can't look at a blog post that's part of the content drip and say, that hits the nail on the head. If they don't get into the messaging stuff, if you step back a little bit and look at it all, then you can and you should. You mentioned something that I wanted to go back on about, you know, like hopping on the calls, listening to the customer, talking to your customers, building those feedback loops. How do you get your team to put that stuff back into campaigns? Like what are the mechanisms that you're looking at to make sure that, okay, hey, we've been hearing this thing a bunch of times. We should do an event about municipalities dealing with COVID, for example? This is a great question. And I think that ultimately it's a problem that everyone faces. It's like, you've got all this inbound kind of information flowing into you. Yeah. The noise, right? And it's, it, some of it's noise, some of it's really useful. And it's like, how do you discern all of what that means? And then how do you turn all that into action? Like flow the feedback from a seller's conversations or from listening to BDRs on a phone call into a modification that occurs at the time a campaign is being created. I think the way you do that is just communication, like over communication. I honestly feel like I spend more of my time connecting people and conversations to each other. Hey, that's a great idea. Did you talk to so-and-so? Hey, that's a great idea. Did you talk to so-and-so? And actually the only problems I face nowadays are when I missed one of those opportunities, when I missed a chance to say, hold on, that's happening over there. This is happening over here and we're not connecting them is usually a miss of that is usually where a problem arises from. And it's all really ultimately tied to communication. Whose job is it to capture all that insight? Whose job is it to make sure the right people have that insight? Whose job is it to make sure that that insight flows into our marketing and the campaigns in market? It's yours as the marketing leader, as the demand gen leader. That's why I say you're the last gate before the world sees this stuff. If you're not doing that over communication, then who is? Do you think that as you're kind of pulling those threads and getting that feedback, I love that, the, I don't know if you've ever heard this, but Eric Reese, who wrote Lean Startup, he created this thing where he's like, if you had like an innovation score for a company, that it's how quickly could an idea get from like any employee up to the CEO and back down. I always think of that with marketing, where it's like, how quickly could you get feedback from a customer that or a prospect to the CMO and then like back down into a campaign or something like that because of the speed and timeliness, right? And then actually get it into the content calendar to get it published. So do you think about speed as a metric for marketing? Because it's one of those things that like, again, back to the scheduling piece, we have so much effort that goes into planning. Like we just had something, I, I just saw this, that they were like, you know, this thing is now in 2020, like February, 2021. I'm like, man, I can't even imagine that anything is going to be happening in February, 2021. Yeah. But it's like, you know, you have marketers that are out there laying tracks for next year already, all of their events, all that stuff. And yet how quickly the market can move and how quickly messaging can move right now. Think of how many market CMOs changed their messaging on a dime because of COVID of like, we are secure, we're reliable, we're this, like, 
So I'm just curious how you view speed as like a marketing metric. It's absolutely a an advantage if you're small. You know, one of the advantages to that metric, the way you described it about getting it from the CEO to execution and back for a company that's 15 people, it's it's easy. For a large organization, it's not exactly that simple, but it should be. It shouldn't be hard to update the website. It shouldn't be hard to shift to a message that's more resonant because you've listened to all these sellers and customers and realized that what you were saying isn't hitting home. You know, It should be easy to have that happen. Unfortunately, I think organizational dynamics stand in the way sometimes. Our jobs in marketing leadership roles, and the head of demand gen is a great example of that, is to be able to discern the nonsense from the reality. Because what's just as important, I think people don't talk about this enough, Going fast is not just about having ideas from which to execute. It's about eliminating all the ones you're not going to do, right? That is just as hard, maybe even more hard than just picking good ones. Yeah, it's a great point. And so you have to just ruthlessly prioritize all the time. And you need a team of people and like your leadership team should be able to prioritize among all those inputs. This one is actually one we need to go and we need to go now and their tone should change and their urgency should change and they should lean forward and it should be important. We have this conversation all the time. Our CMO's name is Ariel Kelman. I've known him for a long time. Every single week we have a leadership meeting and I can tell you that every single week his final comment is faster. Faster matters. And if you're not going faster, you're not going to win. And so, you know, I'd leave your, your audience with that last comment is it doesn't only apply to small companies. It, it applies to everybody. Let's talk ABM. So I think one of the Nate's superpowers is your ability to cultivate communities and get folks that are senior executives in that safe space to be able to talk about stuff, engage with stuff, have the like semi-vendor environment where it's like pretty vendor free, but also, you know, you get to hang out and ask questions sort of a thing. I've seen a lot of like you figure out ABM done right. And I'm just curious, like, how do you look at ABM and starting conversations with, with qualified buyers? First of all, I think the industry has confused humans about what account-based marketing actually is. I truly believe that it's just not that complicated. I think that vendors did that on purpose because it suited their positioning, right? Like if you do this, then you should be ABM is that, and that makes sense. And so it's where we are. Ultimately, account-based marketing just starts with accounts. Sellers are already selling that way. Is that we're talking B2B, especially companies. Your account reps are thinking about the opportunities they have, not Ian Faison's deal, but Caspian's deal. Yeah. You know, they're thinking about the company, the account, already. That's their nature. So why would you not know how to market to those accounts? It's pretty straightforward. I think it's critically important, especially in our business where we have so many existing accounts that love and benefit from our technology. How do we engage them more deeply to do exactly what we started this podcast talking about, which is if you already own A, how do we make sure you understand that we have B and C? If you've got that problem, let's help you solve it. That's an account-based approach. And it's important. It's extremely important because the metrics are different. The depth of engagement with those accounts is different. Do you have the entire buying committee engaged or do you have just a few people? Depending on what you're selling or what your product is, maybe you need every employee to know that you exist. You know, think in terms of like a tonal or something or like Lyft or Uber for business where they're trying to get every employee to use the ride service. Then your strategy is everybody with that company's domain needs to know about your service. And so it does change depending on your scope and your, and your focus, but ultimately it just starts and ends with accounts. 
Who are they? What are we going to try to do with them? How do we reach them? And how do we ultimately influence the entire committee of buyers at an account? Well, and I think as we quote in the intro of this podcast is like, it's about getting a disproportionate share of conversations. That's the point. And it's like to drive conversations. So I always say, you know, marketing is meant to be remarkable, right? Because you want to talk about it with other people. And I think that ultimately what happens a lot in those type of event settings is that you're having people who might not ever be sitting down to talk about this unless they're in a board meeting or whatever, and they can you're spurring a conversation for them to talk about, hey, the person who's running the cloud platform and the person who's running marketing might not be always sitting there talking about those two things, but it's like, oh, well, we use Oracle for this. And like, what do you guys use? That's important to have. We had a podcast episode one time where a chief architect and a marketing officer were both sat in on each other's interviews because they were back to back. And both of them afterwards like, Wow, I didn't know you did all that stuff. Yeah. But I think that those are the sort of things like they don't live in the other person's shoes. And if you're cross-selling to both those folks or if they're stakeholders, like that's where you want your product to be front and center. This goes back to what I said earlier too, by the way. Account-based marketing campaigns are just like any other campaign. They should be connected to the sales motion. They should be consistent with what your sellers are saying to what they see in the market, to what they see in the web personalization you might do or not do. That should be consistency. And for an account, might that consistency could be different. I'd go further. For an industry, as you segment an account-based approach, it might be different for those accounts in that industry than it is for those accounts in another industry. Now you're really taking advantage of what the concept means. What is the most remarkable marketing you could be doing at an account level? It's thinking about a company in an industry and then positioning and running campaigns to the body of influencers at that company in that industry that talks to their problem in their industry and nothing else. Yeah, and so like in that analogy, you're saying, okay, well, we have this automotive CX meetup or something like that, right? Even more than that, it's a retreat or something like that. And there's, you have 10 named accounts there and you have for this, we'll say like head of sales, head of marketing and, you know, somebody else. Um, and they all come to this thing and they all have a great time and a great weekend. They talk a bunch of stuff and then they get back on, you know, Wednesday afternoon and they're like, I should go check out that Oracle CX product. And then they go to the website and it's like, first of all, you ask them to fill out a form, which is horrible. And this is where conversational marketing comes in. It's like what you want, what the nirvana is, is they come to the website and immediately that account rep is talking to them about the stuff that they were just talking about at their retreat, right? Not going through like, I'm going to fill out 50 forms and I'm going to talk to you in a week. And Obviously, you know, this podcast sponsored by qualified.com, that's what they do. But this is their nirvana, right? Is we're going to spend all this money to have this ABM campaign. And then we're not going to capture the value because we're going to push them back into the funnel. It's like we already did all the work. It's a great example. And even a more common one that we've all experienced is you just got off the phone with somebody at company X. And five minutes later, you get an email from that company, not that person, but from that yeah. company that's talking to you like you've never talked to them before. There's nothing more frustrating than that. I mean, maybe it's just me, but it's like, guys, I just spent an hour with you on the phone with one of your agents. And now I'm getting an email saying, hey, we'd like to sell you the thing I already own. That is awful. That's just a consumer example of what ultimately ABM could be for most companies if it's just approached the right way. And it has to do with conversational. There's no better way for marketing to influence the sales funnel than to have all of the accounts we know we're marketing to, that we're engaging as deeply as we can, be treated differently. 
treat them differently. They shouldn't get the same canned message. They shouldn't get the same landing page. We shouldn't ask them for that. We know who they are. There's technology that helps you understand who these people are, their domain, IP addresses, et cetera. When they come in, they should have a different experience. And I think that is what conversational marketing is for account-based marketers, is clearly conversational marketing isn't only for ABM, but applied to an ABM problem, conversational just takes that game to 11, right? Yeah, exactly. And this is like when you have the premier tier one accounts that do X amount of million dollars with you and they don't purchase this one product, if that person who's that buyer is on your website, you have to know and take action in real time when they're looking at, we just spent all this time, effort, and money to do this, and you're just going to let it just kind of treat them like any other website visitor. From a marketer's point of view, it's the worst possible thing you could have happen, right? You've driven engagement for an account. You've got all the people, you've got the buying committee lined up. You've got the campaign in market to drive awareness. You've done personalization where when you visit our website, you see something different than if you go somewhere else. And then the most important person in that buying committee visits the website and you don't have someone ready to talk to them or even better reaching out to them like they know who they are. And that, that is a total miss. You might as well have not bothered, right? It goes back to what I said earlier about if I spend all this time on the phone with an agent and then you send me an email from your company that acts like you've never spoken to me before. That is such a terrible experience for me. You're doing the same thing if you're not turning on something like conversational marketing for, especially for your most important accounts, but also for basically anybody. This problem seems to happen nowadays maybe more than ever before. You know how today, right, 70% of decision-making happens before the salesperson ever gets engaged. Yep. Like, I forget where I read that metric, but I found it fascinating. Oh, yeah, we have Ryan Benici, the CMO of G2, coming on in an upcoming episode, and we talked a bunch about that. I mean, yeah, it's like, if you're ignoring this, like, you're crazy. You're crazy. <laughs> so literally, 7 out of 10 humans, when they talk to your seller, have already decided to either buy you or they're using you to become fodder for some other decision they're making, right? Like, they're creating a justification. But the decision is likely made seven out of 10 times. Well, when that seven out of 10 people come to your website, if you're not engaging them in a different way to shortcut the sales process and get them right to what they need to buy your thing, you missed the boat entirely. And conversational marketing is what that trend is. It's about getting that right conversation at the moment in time that the customer is finally doing what you spend all that money to get them to do. Browse the website, browse the pricing page, et cetera. Not treat them like they're some random. I mean, why not engage them right then? Shortcut the process and eliminate the, the friction that you create in a marketing sales handoff. Let's get into quick hits. Quick questions, quick answers. Just like you can quickly talk to someone on your website with qualified.com our amazing sponsor of the show. We love them. Check them out at qualified.com. Quick hits. Nate, are you ready? I assume so, but we'll see. Number one, have you picked up a habit or hobby during shelter in place? I have picked up a hobby and it is literally going to sound like I'm an old man. I walk two miles a day. It's the only thing that keeps me really sane for being home. I'm in my fourth month now and I walk, I get up at six o'clock in the morning and I do a two mile loop and then I start my day and it's changed the, my life. I'll, I'll probably continue it well after. Do you have a 
book or podcast or TV show you've been binging during quarantine? Yeah, this is going to sound crazy because it's old, but we went back and rewatched all the Dexters. Oh, yeah, we did too. Holy <laughs> cow. It, it, I don't remember any of it, even Neither though I watched I. every single one, and it's like watching it all over again, and we binged, watched every... I'm literally on the eighth season right now. So we, we did the same thing, and cra- so much crazy stuff happens in that show, but then I told... Uh, my fiance that we're just going to stop before the end because I'm like, you're just not going to like the end. Oh, see, I don't remember, so don't say anything because I'm literally going to leave here, go home and watch like episode eight of the season five or season eight. What's your best piece of advice for first time CMO that has to figure out their demand gen strategy? Two things. Can I answer two parts? Fire away. The first part is get into the details. Dig into the details about what's been happening. The second part, like the, all of the data and metrics around the website performance, conversion rates, all that stuff, what channels are working, basically assume that they're all working and give them the ranking that they deserve, meaning like which ones work better, chat, conversational, inbound, email, whatever. Get all that data and understand where you are. The second part of my answer is don't let that dictate where you go next because all that was a result of nothing you had anything to do with. So it's like looking through the rearview mirror and determining how you're going to go forward. It shouldn't do that. But it can tell you is where you should start. Our focus could go here because this is clearly an opportunity based on what the data tells us. But formulate your own go forward. I think a lot of marketers, and I've seen salespeople do this too, we fall victim of metrics determine strategy. Metrics are rear view mirrors. They're not forward looking mirrors. They should inform our decision-making, but they shouldn't be bet the farm on fixing that thing because that thing may not need to be fixed three months from now. Imagine in March, if every company out there, or sorry, now, today, right, July, if all we did was measure what we do going forward on the last three months of our lives, we're, (laughs) I mean, if you're like any other company out there, the last three months metrics for your website and for your campaigns has been way worse off than it was same year over year compare, right? Same quarter last year or same month last year. Unless you're in a rare place where your commodity is required, you're not seeing the performance you'd like to see. So do not base your future and your strategy on what's happened in the past. Let it inform where you go. What question do you never get asked that you wish you were asked more often? I wish I was asked more often to participate in creative brainstorming. Ooh, that's good. So like I get asked occasionally, but I think generally not nearly enough. I think it happens and I don't get invited to the party. And I love that. I love just, you know, whiteboarding, debating the issue, talking through why this message or that, or these words or those words. It's really like the funnest part of our jobs. And I don't get invited to do that as much as I used to. I have to do the inviting and it's not as fun. It's because you you love the Excel spreadsheet too much. You're a victim of your own success. Maybe. I, I really enjoy the messaging and like setting up the storytelling, which we do a lot of, and I still do a lot of it. Is I don't think you can be good at your job if you don't do that, even in a leadership role. The process of brainstorming with a whiteboard is something I don't get invited to nearly enough. I love that part of my job. Well, Nate, I love this part of my job, which is talking to great marketers like you. Thanks. Uh, thanks for joining. This has been super fun. Any, uh, any final thoughts, anything to plug? No, I appreciate the time, Ian. The qualified guys are great. Uh, that product is amazing. Uh, super excited to be here and represent oracle.com slash CX. Love it. Everyone check out Oracle CX, a lot of cool stuff going on and we'll follow, follow along. Nate, thanks for joining. Thanks Ian. Demand Gen Visionaries is brought to you by our friends at qualified.com conversational marketing company that's on a mission to transform the way B2B companies sell. 
Go to qualified.com to learn more.